Hands up if you have ever been in a nativity play at any stage in your life. Oh, loads of hands. Okay. What about major roles? Hands up if you have ever been a Joseph in a nativity play. Oh, a few Josephs. Hands up if you've ever been a Mary in a nativity play. Oh, quite a few more Marys. Um, has anybody here ever been the star, the baby Jesus in a nativity play? Oh, one, and I, I know that, two. And I know there's a third one as well who's too small to put his hand up, but he was our baby Jesus last week if you were here. Um, now, you might think that Joseph, Mary, Jesus, they're the biggest roles in a nativity play, but you'd actually be wrong, as I learned 33 years ago. The biggest role in a nativity play is actually the innkeeper. <laughs> um, or at least, at least that's what they told me at the time, that it's the biggest role. <laughs> when I was claiming that I wanted to be Mary or the baby Jesus. Um, I don't know if you've ever directed or been responsible for trying to organize a nativity play, but if you have, one of the questions you have to ask yourself is whereabouts the play starts. Are you gonna start, which some do, you have to be quite adventurous to do this, hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus, starting with the ancient prophecies that God was gonna send a savior, or do you start when Gabriel appears to Mary and tells her she's going to have a baby? Or do you start when they're on the donkey, supposedly on the way to Bethlehem? And you also have to ask yourself where you're going to finish. Do you finish with the shepherds and the angels? Do you hang on a few weeks more in the chronology and wait for the arrival of the wise men? There are two really interesting figures in the story of Jesus' birth who I've never seen part of an nativity play. They're two wonderful older people, both extremely godly. Luke tells us that they were righteous and they were devout. They lived in Jerusalem. Their names were Simeon and Anna. They were unrelated to each other. But they both lived in the light of the ancient prophecies that God was going to send a saviour. They knew the prophecies inside out. They were actively attentive to them even though they seemed to have come so far in the past that it would have been perfectly rational to doubt that they were ever going to come true. But they were actively attentive to what God had said hundreds of years beforehand. And because they were actively attentive, and because the Holy Spirit revealed it to them, when Jesus was about six weeks old and his parents took him into Jerusalem to fulfill what the Old Testament, the part of the Bible written before Jesus was born, said that the firstborn should be taken to the temple and dedicated. In a crowded temple, it was Simeon and it was Anna who recognized who Jesus was because they were actively attentive to these ancient prophecies. Now skip forward 30 years, and Jesus, who by his birth fulfilled those ancient prophecies, begins laying down a whole heap of new prophecies, things that he said were going to happen in the future. What have become for us today our ancient prophecies, laid down so long ago that it's easy to forget about them. But Jesus actually talked a whole heap. He gave a lot of airtime to talking about when he comes back for a second time. 
we're going to look at one tiny little portion of what Jesus said about when he comes back for a second time. But if you're interested in this, you can read about it in a lot more detail. In Matthew 24 and 25 and Luke 21, there are four different versions of Jesus' life in the Bible. One written by Matthew, one written by Luke. We're going to look at Mark today. And Mark 13 is Jesus talking continually about what's going to happen when he comes back for a second time. So if you've got a Bible um, and you want to have it physically in front of you, we're going to look in Mark 13, but the words are going to come up on the screen behind me. We're going to look at Mark 13, 26 and 27, and then 32 onwards. I'll read to you what it says. This is Jesus talking. He says, At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. And then skipping forward to verse 32, he goes on. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on your guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight, or when the cock crows, or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. I don't know what you're going to be doing over the next couple of days. Any spare time that I have got tomorrow and Tuesday, I'm going to spend tidying the house that I live in from top to bottom. I'm going to hoover everything. When people come over for a few hours, you can shove a lot of rubbish behind the door in the living room and behind the sofa. You can cram every drawer till it's overflowing. But when people are coming for a whole day or for longer, they're going to find all that stuff. So you've got a scrub and you've got a clean. I'm going to have my annual bath. I'm going to cut my toenails. <laughs> um, I would brush my hair if it wasn't going back so far. But I'm doing that because when my family show up on Christmas Day, I want them to have a good time. I'm really blessed with a great family. It wouldn't affect how they love me or what they think of me if they came in the house was a complete tip. But I want them to have a great time when they show up on Christmas Day. So I'm going to make sure that for once the house is looking really, really good. And Jesus, when he was teaching in that passage that we just read, he drew a picture in our mind of what it's like when he comes back and what it's like at the moment. And he draws a picture of a man who's left his home and he's left us in charge of that home. He's left us in charge of that home. And he's left us to be actively attentive to the home now and actively attentive to the fact that he is coming back. And we want him to find his home nice when he comes back. Not because it's going to affect how much he loves us, but because we love him. Because we want it to be nice for him. Because he loved us first. So we love him. So we want to give him the best. 
And you know, when that day arrives, when he comes back in glory to judge the living and the dead, to wrap up human history as we know it, to make all things new, in our hearts, where we're tempted to think, oh, let's get this house really nice so that he loves us a bit more. In our hearts, so that we're te- when we're tempted to think to ourselves, oh my goodness, let's work really hard, and then maybe we'll be fine when he comes back. We don't need to fear. We do not need to fear. You know, the Bible talks a lot, all through Scripture, about cultivating a godly fear of the Lord. But that's different to being afraid. Because we have nothing to be afraid about when Jesus comes back for the second time. You know, he says for everybody, for everybody who has put their faith in Jesus Christ, whether you did it five minutes ago or whether you did it 50 years ago or if you're just about to do it in five minutes time, there is nothing to be afraid of when Jesus comes back in glory, to wrap up human history as we know it. And it's the craziest thing. This man 2,000 years ago who claims he's going to come back in glory as the judge of the world, and a bit like Simeon and Anna, we can think to ourselves, yeah, but these words were so long ago. Do they actually mean anything to us today? But Simeon and Anna were actively attentive to what God had promised hundreds of years before, And they got to see Jesus. His exhortation to us throughout scripture as he talks through the gospels is to be actively attentive to the day when he comes back. I remember, um, I guess I was probably about 15 or 16. I'm the oldest of four. And it got to the stage where my parents were happy to let us come home from school by ourselves. They were both at work. And um, we would always have a panic just before the householder came home i.e. my parents, because it had been nine o'clock at night. They're both coming home late from work. It had been fine weather when we got in at four. It was still fine weather at six. It was raining by the time it was nine, and we'd still left the washing on the line. And we'd hear the car pull up into the drive, and we'd have that moment of panic. Or there'd be that list of jobs on the side that we'd been told we should be getting on with, and we wouldn't think about doing any of them until we heard the car door slam. (laughs) We knew what it was to be fearful of the master of the house, or the mistress of the house returning. And I remember one particular occasion, one of my brothers who was watching telly, um, this is really quite a long time ago, because I remember that it was at a time where you had to change the telly with your foot if you were too lazy to get up and change with your hand. So he pulled up the chair nice and close to the telly, before remotes, or before we had one anyway, and he was changing the channel with his foot, and I was doing everything I could to wind him up. And I knew that if I pushed and pushed and pushed him, eventually he would snap. And eventually he did snap. And he picked up a red felt tip pen and he lobbed it at me and I ducked. And it hit the wall and split open and red ink went all up the wall. We knew what it was to fear the owner of the house coming home. Um, Actually, I, I was quite proud of our ingenuity. We managed to find some paint in the garage. We gave it one layer of paint... Dad got home from work. My dad's not always the most observant. He sat two feet from the newly painted wall, which was still wet, with red splodges showing through it, and ate his tea. We helped him clear the table very quickly. He went upstairs, we gave it a second coat of paint, dried it with a hairdryer, and it was all fine by the time Mum got home. Um, 
But when Jesus tells us that he's coming back in glory as judge of the world to wrap up human history, to make all things new, nowhere is his intent that we should be fearful of that moment. Because he's not only coming back as our judge, and he is coming back as our judge, but he's coming back as our friend and our saviour and our advocate and the one who stands in the gap for anybody, whoever you are, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ. So although it is t- we are told it will be an awesome moment when Jesus comes back, there is no fear of the return of Christ for those of us who know and love Jesus. And if you don't know and love Jesus, the invitation is wide open to you to come on in. So if Jesus' return holds no fear for us, then what does it actually mean for our lives to be actively attentive to the moment when he returns in glory? Well, being actively attentive changes our perspective on life. Being actively attentive to the fact Jesus is coming back frees me from comparison. Because my life no longer becomes about this moment, about getting the most out of this moment. My life becomes about that moment, the moment that is coming, the moment when he returns, the moment when he calls us to himself. My life is no longer about whether I'm squeezing the most out of all of my holidays. Holidays are a good thing, but it's no longer about squeezing the most out of every single minute that I'm in and living purely for now, because my life becomes not just about now, but it becomes about that moment when he comes back. It becomes about that moment when he comes and claims us as his own. Being actively attentive to Jesus' promise that he is coming back puts suffering in perspective. Whatever situation you are in, it will not last forever. This moment will seem like the flickering of an eye in comparison to the eternity that we get to spend with Jesus. Being actively attentive changes my perspective on money because in the life to come money will have no hold on me so it's only in this short flickering moment that I get to decide whether I'm going to be generous it's only in this short flickering moment that I get to decide whether money masters me or whether I master money in the life to come there will be no temptation and no sin So it's only in this short and flickering moment that I get the opportunity to decide whether sin and temptation master me or whether I get to master sin and temptation. Being actively attentive changes my perspective on everything. It's no longer about just this moment, but it's about that moment to come when he comes back in glory as our saviour, as our judge, as our friend. In verse 34, Martin, I don't know if we could have verse 34 back up on the screen. Um, Jesus, Jesus talks about 
about being the owner of the house. And he says there in verse 34, it's like a man going away, he leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Each with their assigned task. Being actively attentive doesn't mean just waiting. It means getting on with what he's called us to do now, in this moment. Because part of living for the moment to come is being faithful in the moment in which we find ourselves. It's about getting on with our assigned task now. And there's a lot of frustration among so many people. And I've been there so often thinking, Lord, will you just show me what my assigned task is? If only you can show me what the right job I should be doing is. If only you can get me the right friends. If only you can get me the right circumstances, then I could be faithful with my assigned task. But the more time goes by, the more I'm convinced that 85%, 90%, 95% of our assigned task is already there clear for us in scripture I'm going to give you a couple of examples that it's not an exhaustive list but there are so many things that scripture encourages us to get on with now regardless of what circumstances we find ourselves in so for example if you look at the beginning of Genesis Genesis tells us to rule over creation and to treat it well so that means for all of us we have a responsibility to treat the planet well that we live on God's told us that. That's part of our assigned task already laid down for us. In Deuteronomy, the Bible tells us repeatedly to love foreigners and outsiders, to involve them, to bring them in, to treat them like they belong. I don't need God to tell me that directly because it's there written down for for me. It's part of my assigned task now. Regardless of how frustrated I am in my job, I'm actually not frustrated in my job, just to clarify that. I love it. (laughs) The boss is there right on the front row. (laughs) But regardless of of how frustrated I may have felt in a previous job, (laughs) it's clear. The Bible's telling me, look after the planet. Love foreigners and outsiders. You know, Jesus tells us that the most important thing that we can do is to love the Lord our God with everything that we've got. It's there laid down for us. It's my assigned task to be getting on with. Jesus tells us to love our neighbor as ourselves. All of us will know people this Christmas that are lonely. All of us have got an assigned task that we can choose to get on with. We can drop somebody a text, ask if they want to come around for a drink. We can ask somebody if they want to go out, I don't know, for dinner or whatever. I'm running out of examples. (laughs) Um, But all of us... Regardless of how lonely we are, all of us will know somebody that's lonely. All of us have got an assigned task when it comes to loving our neighbor. Ephesians 5 tells husbands, love your wives as Christ laid the church. Regardless of how you feel about your wife, husbands, there is your assigned task. (laughs) You don't need a bolt from the blue. Children, honor your father and mother. The Bible is full of our assigned task. So however frustrated you are in your life at the moment, and I believe God wants to deliver us from frustration, but however frustrated you are, there is an assigned task for us to be getting on with now. 
being actively attentive to Jesus' promise that one day he's coming back again, that he's going to make all things new, that he's going to right wrongs, that he's going to bring justice and mercy and peace and wrap up human history, doesn't mean that we don't have a task to be getting on with now. Because being faithful in this moment is part of our living for that moment, that moment which is to come. So what does it look like for us to be actively attentive to Jesus' promise that he's coming back again in our workplace? What does it look like when we go to work to be actively attentive to his promise that he's going to return What does it look like in our family life to hold that truth before us that this moment is not it, but a greater moment is coming? What does it look like for you to live in the light of that? What does it look like in the light of our relationships, our friendships, to live in the light of the fact that a great and glorious and beautiful day is coming when Jesus Christ comes back for us. What does it look like? 